It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. America was ready to make nice. Ten years after the end of the Revolutionary War, tensions with Great Britain remained. George Washington... Fearful any simmering resentment could lead to another war, and keen to leverage the economic advantage of a friendly relationship, dispatched Chief Justice John Jay across the Atlantic as an emissary. Under the terms of the subsequent Jay Treaty, the British would leave the Northwest Territory and open up trade routes. In return, America would settle pre-war debts with British merchants. It promised a fresh start for the former enemies but many thought it gave too many concessions to Great Britain. Much of the American public hated the treaty, and it only squeaked through Congress. In the House, the deciding vote in favour was cast by the nation's first speaker, Frederick Mullenberg. But his anti-British brother-in-law was so angry, he stabbed him. Mullenberg survived, and the brother-in-law was sent to prison for a year. 53 Americans have held the role of speaker since Mullenberg. If the midterm elections go as polls, pundits, and our election forecasting model predict, the 55th Speaker of the House of Representatives will likely be the current Republican minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. With 38 days to go until the midterm elections, I'm John Priddo, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, what would Republicans do with control of the House? House Republicans gathered in Pennsylvania last week to launch their legislative agenda for the next Congress. The commitment to America is fairly brief, pretty unspecific, and filled with standard Republican platitudes around tax cuts and curbing wasteful spending. Kevin McCarthy calls it a new direction for America. But with the checks of the Senate and President Biden, what would House Republicans actually be able to achieve in the 118th Congress? With me this week to figure out what the Republicans would actually do with power if they succeed in the midterm elections in November are Charlotte Howard and Idris Kaloon, this time sitting across the table. How are you guys doing? Good, good. It's fun to be in real life again. Yes, it's great to have you both in New York. Greatest city on earth. Indeed. John's going to ex- protest Do you want to expand on that, Idris? Uh, I think just the, the marvels of the sanitation system. Uh, <laughs> really just <laughs> breathtaking, r- literally. Um, I actually thought of you. I saw on a, a bus an advertisement. I'm so curious what's going to come next. <laughs> an advertisement for a show called Alaska Daily. Which oh, yeah. I, I saw that up. too. Do you, you know what it's about? It's about no. a reporter uh-huh. who leaves New York in disgrace. 
And oh, then, good. Uh, I'm on the path. And then settles in Alaska to start writing, and hijinks ensue. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to watch. <laughs> Maybe the scriptwriter's bugged your apartment. Um, yeah. Charlotte greeted me in the New York office of The Economist yesterday by walking through my door and then throwing a glass of water at me, which has uh, really made me feel very welcome. <laughs> it may have been that I was carrying too many things at once, or it also may be a reflection of my opinion of you. Um, we will let listeners decide. Okay, we've got a lot to talk about this week, so let's begin. Before we begin, I just wanted to say, I know we've got a bunch of listeners in Florida, because they sometimes email me, including sending in some photos of where they're listening to the podcast, and we hope you guys are all staying safe while Hurricane Ian tears through the state. Okay, Idris, this week, you've been writing about the commitment to America and thinking about how it fits into the you know, history of the Republican Party's policy proposals as they've evolved over time. Yeah, that's right. The Republicans have been hyping up their plan, which they call the Commitment to America. That's a nod to the contract with America, which we're going to talk about later. But it finally came out last week. It was unveiled in, they were very proud of this, Washington County, Pennsylvania, as opposed to Washington, D.C. See what they did there. Yeah, yeah. Real uh, real America, not, um, not the swamp. And this week, we took a deep dive into what exactly that contained and what a divided government might look like if, as the models, including our own, suggest, uh, Republicans take over control of the House. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your next House Republican majority. In a factory that manufactures parts for heating and ventilation systems just south of Pittsburgh, House Republicans filed in one after the other as the patriotic country rock song, Made in America, played in the background. The last to enter was a man who would be Speaker of the House if the Republicans triumph in the midterms ahead, the current minority leader, Kevin McCarthy. Against a backdrop of seated workers, a temporarily quieted factory floor, and an oversized American flag, McCarthy decided to unveil his plan to save the country. First of all, thank you. Do you not believe America is exceptional? McCarthy dubbed his plan the commitment to America and said that it was a, quote, plan for a new direction. He painted the country today as a dismal hellhole of democratic creation, with problems ranging from out-of-control inflation. As we went across this country listening, we heard the same thing, kitchen table to dining room table to inside the factory. Can I afford it? To crime and illegal immigration and drug deaths. And then we watched what they did to our communities. Defunding of the police. We got crime problems from Portland to Philadelphia now. With DAs and prosecutors that looked the other way. We've watched what's happened to our border, the millions of people who are just walking across. People on the terrorist watch list. But now we're watching it create every community to be a border community. Fentanyl, the number one killer of Americans between the ages of 18 and 45. That poison starts in China and comes across our border. The commitment to America is itself quite short. A pocket-sized note card that at one point McCarthy grabbed from inside his suit jacket and held in his hands as a prop. It has four pillars that are difficult to argue against. An economy that's strong. That means you can fill up your tank. You can buy the groceries. You have enough money left over to go to Disneyland and save for a future. A nation that's safe. That means your community will be protected. Your law enforcement will be respected. Your criminals will be prosecuted. 
a future that's built on freedom. That your children come first. They're taught to dream big. And a government that's accountable. We should work for you, not the other way around like it is today. If that all sounds a bit vague, that's because it is. The plan doesn't yet have much detail on how all of these accomplishments would be achieved. There are some specific promises sprinkled throughout, for example, to reduce the time it takes to get energy permits, to move supply chains away from China, and to recruit more police officers. But there are also nebulous pledges without much detail to, quote, protect the lives of unborn children, quote, secure the border, and, quote, support our troops. Its platitudes won little support, either from President Joe Biden. That's a a thin series of policy goals with little or no detail that he says Republicans are going to pursue if they regain control of the Congress. Or even from Tucker Carlson, the influential right-wing Fox News television host. House Republicans just spelled out what they're running on. It's a document called The Commitment to America. It's fine. Probably not much in it. You disagree with it. Have you heard of it? No, you probably haven't. You probably haven't read it. Nobody really cares. Why? Because there's nothing real in it. But McCarthy seems to think it'll be decisive in the elections ahead. Idris, it sounds like for once your analysis of this piece of policy and Tucker Carlson's are, are kind of the same. It's a bit thin, right? Yeah. Well, I think we can both read, even if we may disagree on many things. Actually, if you think about the reasons why it's so kind of skimpy a document, they actually reflect what's going on within the Republican caucus. So McCarthy actually set up these task forces of Republican lawmakers who had been thinking about all of these topics for more than a year uh, in some cases So, and had come up with some more details there. I think the problem came in terms of actually laying out what the plan was because Republicans couldn't agree on everything. And this was a document that he wanted to say every Republican had signed and committed to. And so in order to get there, it's a bit like, you know, climate treaties or something like that. You end up with this sort of vague promise um, instead of specific. So I think that's what's going on. And that reflects, I think, the difficulty that he'll have uh, if he becomes speaker, which is that um, managing the very fractious Republican coalition is going to be his biggest challenge. And that's been a task that has basically eaten alive John Boehner and Paul Ryan when they were in charge of the House as well. And I think he has to avoid a similar fate. Um, And you see that tension already reflected in this document. I thought the document was really fascinating for a few reasons. But there were kind of four categories, as I read it, that stood out. One was when he created a chain of cause and effect that was really gauzy, like really does wasteful government spending, is that the reason why gas prices are high? So there was that kind of category of of statement. And then there were some legitimate issues that it wasn't clear exactly how they would solve them, including permitting reform and, and trying to get some of these projects through. And then there was signaling on trans issues, on abortion. And then the last category was the one that was most interesting to me, which is areas of agreement uh, with Democrats. So competition with China, promoting American manufacturing, thinking about uh, even the permitting issue. That's something that Democrats are taking more seriously now because they want to put all this government cash to work to build renewables. And so I'm really interested in what happens with that last category of ideas, the ones where actually there's quite a lot of commonality with Democrats and Republicans. Do you think, Idris, that just the politics of Washington mean that there may be common ground, but that doesn't mean there'll be any action? Well, we already saw that this week with 
uh, Senator Joe Manchin's bill, right, that would have expedited uh, permitting reform and that has now failed effectively, even though it's something that Republicans by and large might have agreed with. They're annoyed with Manchin for his assistance in passing the Inflation Reduction Act. They don't want to give a win to him when Democrats had kind of balked at this idea. Yeah, the permitting reform is such a good example of that. I mean, it sounds nerdy and small ball, but it's really not, right? I mean, Democrats want to reduce carbon emissions and they want to get more renewable energy. Republicans want to make it easier to build stuff. These two things come together in permitting reform, which basically is what you need to happen in order to plug the sources of renewable energy into the places where that energy will get consumed. And so the two sides really have a huge interest in working together. And yet, even on something like that, which is not high salience, right? It's not something that voters are really potentially cross about like abortion or guns. Even on something like that, getting to yes is so hard. All right, we'll find out about the legislative plan that the commitment to America is modelled on in a moment. But first, the usual reminder, there's never been a better time to subscribe to The Economist if you don't already. This week, we've launched a podcast that the podcast team has been working on all year. It's called The Prince. It's an eight-part series about Xi Jinping. We put that on the cover in the US. If you listen to the end of this podcast, then you can hear a trailer for The Prince. It's really, really good. Our colleagues who write about China have several excellent articles about Xi Jinping in the weekly edition, which you will need a subscription to read, and it's absolutely excellent. So please go and binge the podcast, and economist.com slash uspod is the link to subscribe to The Economist. You'll find that in the notes for this episode. For most of the second half of the 20th century, nothing was certain except death, taxes and democratic control of the House of Representatives. As the 1994 midterms approached, it had been 40 years since Republicans had held the chamber. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. In late September 94, with six weeks until Election Day, 350-odd House Republican incumbents and candidates gathered on the steps of the Capitol to launch their election platform. Today, we Republicans are signing a contract with America. Texas Congressman Dick Armey was one of the authors of the contract with America. We pledge ourselves in writing to a new agenda of reform, respect, and renewal. There were proposed reforms to the way Congress worked, including cutting committee staff by a third. And there was a legislative agenda slightly awkwardly crammed into 10 bills. Reportedly, Newt Gingrich, Army's co-author and the name now most associated with it, wanted it to be 10 to equal the Bill of Rights. We recognise that we Republicans want a larger private sector with more private sector jobs with less government. Each bit was given a grand title. The Fiscal Responsibility Act would balance the budget. The Personal Responsibility Act would cut welfare spending and the National Security Restoration Act would stop US troops acting under UN command. All 10 bills would be voted on within the first 100 days of the new Congress. Every item in our contract is supported by 60% or more of the American people. Some of the items are supported as much as 80% of the American people. And outside Washington, this is a contract with Americans for America. The contract had been heavily focus-grouped and poll-tested. It drew in part from Ronald Reagan's 1985 State of the Union and promised small government 
tax cuts and deregulation, in other words, a Republican panacea. At the time, The Economist described the contract with America as a dish of reheated Reaganomics served up with congressional reform. I'm going to sign the contract now as the last member to do so on behalf of the Republican conference. It was a big swing. By writing the contract, Republicans had given up the advantage of opposition, having no record that could be attacked. But they also presented themselves as a party with a positive agenda, a plan for change. It's been well over a week since the election, but Republicans are still riding high on the GOP wave of victory. In the end, Republicans were triumphant. They won control of the Senate, and a 54-seat swing gave them the House. The contract with America wasn't the only reason for the so-called Republican Revolution. Bill Clinton was unpopular, and his legislative agenda had stalled. But the American people had given Gingrich and his caucus the chance to fulfil their contract. Ladies and gentlemen, the gentleman from Georgia, the Speaker of the House, Newt Gingrich. In April 1995, Gingrich, now Speaker, and Republican House members again gathered on the Capitol steps. It says, if we break this contract, throw us out, we mean it. As pledged, every bill in the contract had been voted on in the first hundred days. The editorial writers scoffed. The political pundits said it was a mistake. But the truth was, and this may be our greatest contribution to modern America, we did mean it. We did keep our word. All but one, the Citizen Legislature Act, which would introduce term limits, passed the House. But faced with a more cautious Senate and President Clinton's opposition, only three relatively uncontroversial proposals became law. The contract with America was therefore only a mild legislative success, but it set the tone for a different kind of politics. The era of big government is over. In response, Bill Clinton tacked to the centre and likely wouldn't have won re-election in 1996 without doing so. The DNA of the contract with America can be seen in the smaller government and welfare reform policies he pursued. The era of big government being over lasted until the financial crisis a decade later. Republicans have been searching for an encore ever since. Charlotte, looking at the contract with America, Gingrich's contract with America, and the commitment to America that Kevin McCarthy has put forward, I was struck by a few things. One is, I suppose, a cultural thing, how some of the language has changed. So in 1994, Republicans were pretty fixated on the social problem of single mothers, teenage mothers giving birth. And there's a part of the contract America called the Personal Responsibility Act, which talks about discouraging illegitimacy and teen pregnancy by prohibiting welfare to minor mothers, etc, etc. And politicians can't talk in that way now. So that struck me as a kind of interesting difference. Another was this contractual approach to politics. So back in the 90s, I think the Republicans had this idea that politicians weren't really accountable to the public. And they were really into coming up with pledges that lawmakers would sign and then be held to. And so you have, you know, Grover Norquist's anti-tax pledge, which an enormous number of Republican congressmen um, sign. And that's kind of gone by the wayside, which strikes me as interesting. And the other is the 
point that Idris has touched on already, which is the contract with America was pretty far-ranging and ambitious in policy terms and actually quite specific. Whereas the Kevin McCarthy version, you know, gives a good sense of what Republicans are against, but no real sense of how that might be translated into legislation. Yeah, I agree with you on most of that and not entirely on some of it. So, I mean, you still have lawmakers who are very interested in what their rating is with the NRA, the, right, and where they stand on guns. You still have these various litmus tests that politicians are are held to. Do they believe in the big lie? What's their opinion of Dobbs, the abortion decision that came out in June? So I think that there are some ways in which those factors remain. But the thing that strikes me most almost, and I'm really curious, Idris and John, and each of your views on this, is that 367 Republican candidates signed the document that was quite detailed. And that just conveys both a masterful level of sheep herding by Newt Gingrich himself and a kind of unity within the party. And I'm wondering, Idris, if you see what is happening now within the Republican Party, the fractious nature of it, whether you see that as kind of a long-term shift that will continue? Is there any prospect that there may be a more unified Republican Party? Because what seems to have happened in the past decade, and particularly under Trump, is that there were certain things that the Republicans in general stood for since the Reagan era, and a lot of those have been torn up. And so you have those principles that aren't really unifying in the way that they used to be. You have a cult of personality in Donald Trump. You have sort of sensational issues that seize the imagination, whether it's Benghazi or, or Hunter Biden's laptop. And on policy, it seems like they're kind of a mess. So what do you think about that? Is that a long-term problem or a long-term phenomenon? I think you're right. I think that there was this sort of long-held Reaganomic orthodoxy, which you still see. I mean, you see it in McCarthy's commitment as well, right? It says that the solution to inflation is uh, tax cuts and deregulation. So that's consistent. But Trump overturned a lot of central Republican policy dogma. He didn't want to defund or radically diminish Social Security and Medicare, which had always been a sort of Republican idea. Eventually, we're going to have to do entitlement reform. He very much wasn't in favor of free trade like Republicans had been. He was skeptical of free markets. He didn't have this sort of deep abiding belief in government being too big. Government was just right if it worked to his purposes, and it was too big if it didn't. And I think that the vacuum has not really been filled by anyone in terms of policy thinking. You know, Paul Ryan might have been the wonkiest member of the House of Representatives, and he's he's gone. He's out of the game. There aren't that many wonks kind of left. So I think that when you get to the issue of building up an actual policy agenda, it becomes hard. I mean, there's a reason Mitch McConnell just hasn't done it for a long time. He thinks that it, putting it out just makes the party open to attack. For about 10 years, the extent of healthcare policy thinking on the Republican Party was we're going to defund, uh, repeal and replace Obamacare not much thought about what would happen afterwards. And ultimately, that was unsuccessful. I don't know that you have substantial levels of that. And even, even within the think tank world, I think you've seen, you know, for example, the Heritage Foundation kind of was a policy brain for, for Republican administrations. And its, its evolution into becoming much more of a kind of political action-oriented focus just epitomizes, I think, the direction of the party. I mean, we had Orrin Cass on the other week who represents a different kind of Republican economic thinking. And I guess what I find so interesting about the Republican Party right now is that it feels like it's all up for grabs. So there, to the extent that people care at all about policy, there's quite a lot of debate about what it should be. 
And so the nihilist view is that Republicans, you know, there may be these policy debates happening on the fringes, but the core of the party has just become about the big lie and changing the rules of democracy and uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. And so I think that's kind of something that will be decided in the next two years, whether there's anyone within the party who can kind of rise up and present a coherent economic plan, because you can't always just be the party of grievance, I would think. You can't always just complain the way that Trump did without doing anything. I mean, that's the bet. Why not? He's been right. he's been in charge of the party for seven years, and DeSantis, Ron DeSantis, is, is not, if he does succeed Trump, he's not going to be because his policy agenda is so good. It's going to be because he's doing that brand of politics in yeah. an even better way. Right? So I think you're probably right that that probably is the likely outcome, but I just wonder whether there's anyone within the party who can present something a bit more coherent. I'm not saying I would agree with it, but I would be interested if there was any kind of vision that took off beyond just being one of anger. I, I think, you know, Mitt Romney's has been sketching out a family policy agenda, which is a lot more generous than than had been previously. It's the exact opposite, really, of the Personal Responsibility Act, which became welfare reform in 1996. People like Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley are thinking about industrial policy in a way that's, I think, coherent. Um, it doesn't add up to a full agenda. There are people who are thinking about this stuff. But you know, Mitt Romney introduced his bill to expand child tax credits and didn't get a single Republican co-sponsor when he did that. Um, so he's kind of on an island of his own. And I think that, that you know, there is thinking that's happening, but it's not. So it's just a party that's fundamentally uninterested in governing. What my answer to that would be that it's a party that has an agenda, but that that agenda is not something that can be really realized through government or at least through the federal government. So we heard at the top Kevin McCarthy talking about the need to prevent immigration, stop fentanyl from coming in, bring crime down, tackle inflation. All of those things are actually real problems. You know, he, he's correct to identify them. Very few of those, to my mind, can be addressed you know, solely by controlling the federal government. I mean, they were all problems under Donald Trump, right? They're problems under Joe Biden. Some of them will go away of their own accord. But in terms of what all of us would think of as a legislative agenda, which is something more like the kind of Gingrich contract in 1994, I sort of agree with Idris on this. The Republican Party is doing pretty well electorally without that. And I don't see them sort of suddenly turning into a party of, of policy wonks. I, I had one question for you guys, which is that, OK, let's imagine that Kevin McCarthy is Speaker of the House in January. There's a legislative part to having the House majority, and there's an investigations part. And we'll talk about the investigations part in a minute. Legislatively, I think I take from this conversation, we're not going to see a lot, right? But if Republicans are in the majority in the House, they'll have the ability to block a whole load of stuff, right? So will we see a return to the politics we had in the late Obama presidency of brinksmanship over the debt ceiling, government shutdowns, and the House Republicans trying to behave as crazily as they can in order to extract concessions from Democrats or whoever controls the Senate and the White House. Is that what we're heading for? That's my main guess, I would say. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, the other factor that's different from the Obama, the late stages of the Obama presidency is that Obama started really going hard on executive orders. He would have tons of stuff that he was trying to do through executive action. And earlier this summer, we had the Supreme Court issue a ruling on the EPA, which affects the EPA's power to curb emissions, but has a broader impact, which is just raising doubts about the degree to which regulatory agencies can pass quite substantial policies. So I think that that will perhaps 
make the latter years of Biden's presidency more modest, probably, than the Obama term. Okay, these are going to be fun times. We'll be back in a moment to consider what House Republicans would do with their investigative powers. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So if Republicans do have a majority in the House, they will chair the committees and have investigative powers. Idris, you've been speaking to someone who's likely to chair a powerful committee in the next Congress. That's right. I spoke with James Comer, who's a Republican representative from Kentucky. He's the favorite to chair the uh, House Committee on Oversight and Reform, which is the main investigative committee that exists in the House. Um, And he's already started sketching out uh, his agenda. You know, our core mission is to root out waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement in the government. We are confident when we say that the Democrats on the Oversight Committee have provided absolutely no oversight of the Biden administration for the last two years, and I mean zero, and I'm going to give you, cite some sources. We have had zero Biden cabinet officials in front of the Oversight Committee over the past two years. So there's been zero oversight provided to the Biden administration. So obviously we want to focus on the most severe cases of potential waste, fraud, abuse, and mismanagement. So the three areas from an investigative standpoint, now we'll be uh, oversight and the lead investigative body for the House. So the three main investigations that we want to try to conduct right out of the gate because we're doing probes now we're doing investigations now as a a minority but obviously we don't have subpoena power now we will in january or i will in january Uh, we believe and this has been in the news a lot we believe that hunter biden is a national security risk that he has compromised joe biden and you know with respect to energy policy we believe that a lot of the decisions he's made on energy policy is based on shady business deals with hunter biden especially selling, you know, potentially selling the strategic reserve to China that was Hunter involved in some of those companies. We think he was involved in some of the companies that bought the strategic reserve. So it just seems like there are a lot of very drastic decisions that this administration's made that we Republicans believe are counter to the average working American. And then you, you, you start look, digging into it and Hunter Biden was trying to profit from it in some form or fashion. It's odd that Hunter Biden's always involved in some of this. Then the foreign policy debacle. Look at what's going on with with the, the, the you know, I don't think Hunter had anything to do with the debacle in Afghanistan, but with Ukraine, you know, when, when Biden put those sanctions on all the Russian oligarchs, he just happened to leave off two names, two names of Russian oligarchs that we're pretty confident paid Hunter Biden money in the past. 
why did they get left off the sanctions list? I mean, this is some very serious stuff that the Democrats and a lot of people in the mainstream media don't want to talk about. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Look, a lot of the conspiracy theory stuff that the media hits the Republicans on, you don't see my name on any of it. None of it. So the Hunter Biden investigation, which, again, is not a political witch hunt like an Adam Schiff investigation. This is something that we believe is a national security threat. And we fear that Joe Biden is compromised because of Hunter's shady business dealings. So that's the you know the first high-profile investigation. The second is we've been on top of this COVID origination from day one. We're not going to give up on determining the origination of COVID because we believe America deserves answers and that people should be held accountable if there's any wrongdoing involved. And number three, border security. We've made two trips to the southern border. I have a lot of members on the committee from Texas, Arizona, New Mexico. Uh, we, we've heard from uh, many border patrol agents, many people in ICE that are concerned with uh, the policies of this administration. We believe that this is a national security risk, what's going on, especially with fentanyl and human trafficking. So uh, we're going to hold some pretty high-profile hearings on investigations with respect to the terrible southern border policy of this administration. Idris, I feel like once these midterms are through, we're due and explain an episode on Hunter Biden and his laptop and all the accusations against him that are swirling on the on the right in America. But before we get there, could you just recap a bit what the purpose of these committees is meant to be? I mean, as James Comer said there, they have subpoena power, right? So as Steve Bannon found out recently, if you ignore the summons, you can actually go to jail. This makes them pretty powerful. Yeah, they're very powerful. Their intent is to allow Congress to supervise all the goings-ons of the federal government. Like you said at the beginning, it's uh, the purpose is to root out examples of waste, fraud, and abuse that most people would find unobjectionable. But these days when it's a the party in power is opposite that of the White House, it's used as a launching pad for investigations that can be very damaging to the administration. And the Hunter Biden laptop story is, I think, going to be one that we're all going to be hearing quite a lot more about. When I was a Midwest correspondent, I used to have these really long drives. And during those drives, I would listen to Rush Limbaugh because it wasn't a different take on the news that one might read in the New York Times. It was just an entirely parallel news cycle. And this strikes me as the same, where the Republican Party is very, very focused on Hunter Biden's laptop. And if you just listen to NPR or the New York Times, you'd have literally no idea that it was an issue at all. And so when I go back to the beginning of our conversation, when we were looking at that two-sided note card that Kevin McCarthy pulled from his pocket, it was toward the end that they talked about the investigative powers. But I think... And it was one bullet point. But I have a feeling that it's going to be 95% of the activity over the next two years after Republicans get in the House, should they do so. Yeah, I think it may end up being the most consequential thing that they do. I think that your point about the laptop is really, it, I was talking to someone, I can't remember if it was you or someone else, but it reminds me a lot of a film noir movie. There was this laptop of sort of preposterous origination, right? He had dropped it off at a repair shop to a Trump-supporting guy, and then this made its way to Rudy Giuliani, who started talking about it a few weeks before the election. And I think all the mainstream outlets said, okay, this is clearly not real. You know, the tech companies said, don't distribute it. It's misinformation. And that has fueled, I think, 
continuing distrust and within the conservative media. I mean, it's going to be, I don't want to talk about it so much because I think we're going to be talking about it a lot more in the months ahead, but it's this sort of murder mystery almost um, that will suddenly move to the center of American politics. James Comer didn't mention it, Idris, in his list, but I also assume that Merrick Garland will be spending a lot of time in front of House committees, in particular talking about the decisions made to go and knock on the door of Mar-a-Lago and retrieve those documents. Yeah, there'll be a lot of hostile questioning of him. There will be uh, Secretary Mayorkas of Homeland Security has been a, a big uh, focus also of Republicans who are unhappy with uh, what's happening with the border among the more right leaning members of the Republican caucus. There are already calls to impeach Mayorkas. There are also already calls to impeach Biden, which um, actually Comer, uh, Representative Comer said explicitly, you know, aren't going to go anywhere. He sees impeachment as a sideshow because he knows the Senate's not going to convict. And he knows, he says something very interesting that a bunch of his colleagues, you know, will go down that route because it's going to be the thing that gets them a lot of attention, a lot of retweets and all this other stuff. But he's, you know, he doesn't want to focus on that. He wants to focus on, I think, the the things that might hurt the administration. I think the real sort of question that's of the public interest is whether or not, as he asserted, there's any connection between the president's son and, and the president himself, right? You know, you can imagine if Donald Trump's children were pursuing some of these sorts of deals, Democrats would be extremely interested in learning the possible connection between the two. But that is much more uncertain. What I think will happen is we're going to get a lot of embarrassing details about the president's son, about the president's family. You know, it's not going to be a very good year for him on the quest of getting some information on the president, which may or may not actually come to light. Charlotte, I can tell from your expression, you're really looking forward to this. Yeah, I mean, I was just sighing deeply while Idris laid out what the next two years are going to be like. I think I go back to my earlier point, which is that there's always this charade. It's kind of a piece of political theater that each party presents a set of ideas, in some cases really detailed with Democrats, and in some cases not at all detailed in the case of Kevin McCarthy's commitment to America. But you do see that a lot of the time, it's just this kind of thing. It's the laptop, it's it's this scandal, it's that scandal. I would point out that actually a lot happened in the first two years of President Biden's term. So we did have the CHIPS Act, we had the infrastructure bill, we had the IRA, which includes a huge amount of uh, spending for new types of energy projects. So it's not like Washington doesn't do anything ever. But I do think we're turning the corner towards another era in which the city is consumed with scandal. I guess it's not too unlike the latter days of Clinton's presidency. Which I have very um, vivid memories of. Yeah, because you were five years old. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, my mom, uh, my mom taped all of the Monica Lewinsky stuff um, because she had just moved to America uh, a few years ago and there was this huge scandal that was happening and she thought it would be interesting for me to watch one day. And like the concept that this would all be on YouTube obviously wasn't a thing. So she she like recorded VHS tapes of like Ken Starr and, and all this stuff and she like kept them for when I would be of age um, and able to see the theater of American politics. And so, did you watch them? On YouTube. <laughs> Later. <laughs> um, well, Idris, given that you've been studying Republican politics in the 80s and 90s on YouTube, I think you may have an unfair advantage in the quiz. So, 
It is quiz time. Newt Gingrich first appeared in The Economist in April 1980 when he wrote us a letter defending then-presidential candidate Ronald Reagan. He was miffed that we had written that Republicans in Congress didn't favour Reagan's proposed tax cuts. Gingrich, who was then in his first term as a congressman, assured us that they did. Question one. Gingrich ran unsuccessfully for the Republican nomination for president in 2012. He won two state primaries. Which states... Oh. Georgia, since he was from there, I would guess. And Is it one of the Carolinas? South Carolina goes first, yeah. South Carolina. It was Georgia and South Carolina. Yeah. Good work, guys. Full mark. I'm taking a point for that. I, I think I one of the Carolinas is definitely a yeah. point. Question two. What detail about his personal life does Gingrich have in common with Emmanuel Macron? Is he an older wife? Um, something about sibling order. It's not a sex thing? Um, I mean, it's sort of related somehow. That doesn't help, does it? I may have got you this time. Or rather, Harriet, our producer, has got you. Shall I put you out of your misery? Yeah, do it. So he married his teacher. Oh, really? Gingrich's first wife, Jackie, had been his high school geometry teacher. Oh, God. They married when he was 19 and she was 26. You, you were right, I would say. I'm not, I'm not bemoaning that I was right or wrong. I'm just thinking about Newt Gingrich as a geometry student and marrying his teacher. Well, on that bombshell, thank you, Idris. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you. Thanks. It's really nice to do this in person for once. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Our sound engineer is Nicola Rofast. Thanks to Alia at Hangar Studios in Midtown Manhattan for hosting us this week. Do listen to the end of Checks and Balance to hear a trailer for our new podcast series about Xi Jinping. It's called The Prince. If you like this podcast or if you enjoy The Prince, please let people know and leave us a rating and review. It makes a huge difference to how many other people can then find the podcast and go listen to it. You can now find every episode of Checks and Balance in one place at economist.com slash checkspod. And please do get in touch with us via email. The address is podcasts at economist.com. We'd particularly like to hear from any of our listeners in Florida this week. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Xi Jinping is the most powerful man in the world and a big mystery. I'm Su Lin Wong, host of The Prince, a new podcast from The Economist. It's the real story of China's leader, his traumatic childhood, his rise through a brutal regime and the lessons he learned. Now he wants to reshape the world. To understand what's next, you need to know where he came from. Listen to The Prince from The Economist wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.